you can be seated. If you're not already there, you can find your way in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. Verse 35, I will read. Um, This is not particularly going to be an exposition of John chapter 10, um, but a message on Jesus' view of the Bible. Calling it the Bible-thumping Jesus. John chapter 10 and verse 35 If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. Let's pray. Lord God, we want to have a right and proper view of your word. And so teach us, Lord, this morning. Help us to have the right biblical and Christ-like view of your word that we ought to have and help us to have submissive hearts that believe your word, that revere your word, and that love your word. In Jesus' name, amen. It was the great football coach of the Green Bay Packers who is, legend would have it, during a halftime speech to his football team, He said, men, this is a football. His point was, let's go back to the basics. Let's go back to the fundamentals of playing the game of football. And every once in a while, that's something of what we need to do as Christians, to just go back to the basics. Go back to the fundamentals of the Christian life. And a couple weeks ago, Pastor Chris gave a message from James chapter 1 on listening to and responding to the Word of God. And this this message is going to complement that message uh, and and give us some more rationale for for why. why. Why do we spend 60 minutes on a Sunday morning opening up the Scripture? Why do we do the public reading of Scripture? Why is the Bible such an important part of the Christian's life? And Uh, One fundamental answer to that is Jesus. Jesus was a Bible thumper. Jesus was very big on the Bible. And so this morning, and and part of this is is I was going through the Gospel of John week by week. We we came across this phrase in John 10.35 where Jesus says a statement almost in passing, but it is part of His argument that the Scripture cannot be broken. It's an interesting statement that Jesus makes that highlights one of many passages, Jesus' view of the Bible. And so this morning we are going to look at five different areas in which Jesus believed in the authority of Scripture, in which five implications of Jesus' belief about the Scripture. But let's look just from this passage what Jesus believed about the Bible. Jesus, this is part of his argument in John 10, where he's interacting with these Jewish leaders. In verse 31, they're picking up stones to stone him. And then in verse 32, Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from your Father. For which of them are you stoning me? Jesus answered, For a good work 
I'm sorry, the Jews answered him, For good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a mere man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law? I said, You are God's. Now some weeks back, when we looked at this passage, we saw that Jesus was indeed quoting from Psalm, Psalm 82. And he's... We, we looked at that passage and, and saw how the author of that psalm is actually referring to the corrupt judges of that time and he's calling them Elohim or gods. And Jesus, using that argument, basically the gist of it, if you go back and listen to that message from a couple weeks ago, was that in the Old Testament, the writers of the Old Testament sometimes called humans these judges as Elohim, how much more ought the one who is the Son of God be given the title of God? But what I want you to notice in verse 34 and 35, part of Jesus' argument here, he's, he's basing his argument off of the Scriptures. In verse 35, if he called them gods, them gods in Psalm 82, to whom the Word of God came and the Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of Him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. Jesus' whole argument rests upon the word gods. And in this statement in verse 35, He says the Scripture cannot be broken. He, this is part of the common ground that He had with these religious leaders, namely that they believed that the Bible that was written up until that point in time, namely the first 39 books of the Bible, was God's Word and it could not be broken. And what does He mean by this the, the phrase, it cannot be broken? Well, if you were looking... For somewhere to sit down this morning and you saw that the chair was broken, more than likely, if you're smart, you wouldn't have sat on it, right? Uh, you, you don't want to fall down. You wouldn't have trusted the chair. You wouldn't put your full weight upon the chair because it's broken. If your car has a dead battery, it's broken. You, you wouldn't have tried to get into the car and come to church this morning because it's broken. You don't trust it. You don't rely upon it. But Jesus says the Scripture cannot be broken. In other words, the point is that the Scripture is trustworthy and can be relied upon in all and in every place in which God has written. This brings us to an important theological phrase. Now the church growth gurus would tell me that God's people are far too stupid to give them theological words, but... I have a more elevated view of you guys. <clears throat> verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal, that means the words. Plenary, like if you're at a conference and there's a plenary session, that's a full session where everybody's there. Inspiration, that means it's God-breathed. So, so, so the phrase... Verbal plenary inspiration means that all the words of the Bible are breathed out by God. They are inspired. And so this is basically 
the view that Jesus had of the Bible. This is the view that the apostles had of the Bible. This is the view spelled out in 2 Timothy 3.16-17. You probably have it memorized. All Scripture is what? Given by inspiration of God. So all Scripture, all the writings are given by inspiration of God. Or some of your translations may say, God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God would be complete, thoroughly furnished for every good work. So this is Jesus' view of the Bible. This is also evidence... When, when we look at the Gospel of Mark chapter 12 and verse 35, Jesus began to say as He taught them in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of God? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. So Jesus, again, He's arguing with the religious leaders, he's quoting from Psalm 10, which is a Psalm, Psalm uh, 110, which is a Psalm of David. And he says, David said, in the Spirit. The Spirit of God inspired the pen of David to write down Psalm 110. And, and of course, we can go through hundreds of passages where Jesus is quoting the Old Testament to see that Jesus believed that all of the Scripture was God-breathed. And so, as I mentioned, the rest of our time, we're going to look at the implications of that. And Jesus seeing the authority of Scripture over these, these five different areas. And this is important because, obviously, that fundamental truth that where the Bible speaks, God speaks, is then going to practically flesh out that when God speaks, He wins. He's the King. He's the one who knows everything. He's the boss. When He speaks, He speaks truth. And so let's see how Jesus saw this. First of all, Jesus believed in the authority of Scripture over tradition. Turn to Matthew chapter 23 and verses 1 through 4. Jesus is rebuking the religious leaders of his day. And he says in verse 1 of Matthew 23, and then Jesus spoke to the crowds and said to the disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Now, in the synagogue, there was a particular chair that was called the chair of Moses or the seat of Moses where people would sit down for the reading of Scripture. Okay? So the synagogue official, whoever was appointed to do the Scripture reading, would sit down in the seat of Moses. And it was probably called the seat of Moses because Moses was the one who gave those first five books of the Bible. And so Jesus is talking about the scribes and Pharisees. When they're, they're seated in the seat of Moses... And reading from Scripture, verse 3, Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not, according, do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay on men's soldiers, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. In other words, Jesus, you know, if you're familiar with the New Testament, He's constantly at war with the scribes and Pharisees. But here, interestingly enough, in verse 2 and 3, he says, when they're seated in the seat of Moses, when they're reading the Scripture, do everything they say. But also understand 
They're hypocrites. And so don't follow their example. And so Jesus makes, a, in a sense, a distinction between the religious leaders and their actions and, and as the passage unfolds their traditions versus the Word of God. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Again, Jesus in interaction with the scribes and the Pharisees. It says, The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around Him, and they had come from Jerusalem and had seen some of the disciples who were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which have, they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and, pot, and copper pots. So what's the situation here? So Jesus' disciples were not washing their hands before eating. Now, again, in our context, uh, you know, parents instruct their children, go wash your hands. Your hands are filthy. Wash your hands before dinner. And, and we do that for hygienic reasons, right? You know, we don't know where their dirty little hands have been. But in this context, it wasn't for hygienic reasons, but was for uh, cleanliness reasons. Uh, and this was part of the tradition of the religious leaders of the day, part of the rabbinical tradition that, you know, you might have been in the marketplace and touched something that a non-Jewish person, a Gentile, had touched and you got Gentile cooties on your fingers and so you need to go wash your hands before you come and eat or you might ingest those Gentile cooties through your French fries. Uh, and, And so... The point being is they would go through the ceremonial washing before they ate. But the disciples of Jesus didn't do this. And so this is creating a problem, a tension between Jesus' disciples and Jesus in particular and the scribes and Pharisees. Verse 5, the the Pharisees and the scribes asked Him, asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? So this is the question. Why why do your disciples not follow this tradition? How does Jesus respond? Verse 6. I think I have a verse for you guys. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching the as doctrines, the precepts of men. Jesus says, um, I have a verse for you. Hypocrites. Jesus wasn't playing nice with them. And he quotes this verse from Isaiah where the people of Israel at that time had taken the, the, the precepts of men, the commandments of men, and were treating them as if they were the Word of God. And he's saying, that, that verse is for you guys. He rebukes them for elevating their traditions to the place of the authority of the Word of God. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with traditions. We're in the holiday season. I'm sure many of your families have traditions, right? 
You know, you may do certain things on Christmas Eve, certain things on Christmas morning, and and, and it's something that was maybe passed down from your parents. It's something that's customary that you do. There's nothing wrong with traditions. But we need to understand that when we put traditions, things that we do just because we've always done them, on the level of the Word of God... Now, we've elevated that tradition to a position that it ought not to keep. And Jesus goes on and gives an example of this. Verse 8, Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. So, Jesus furthers this argument here, that any time you elevate a tradition to equal authority with the Word of God... Ultimately, that tradition becomes an authority over the Word of God so that you wind up holding to the tradition of man and neglecting the Word of God. And he gives them an example of this in verse 9. He said to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Verse 10, For Moses said... Honor your father and mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. So here Jesus quotes, he quotes from the Bible, he quotes from the Scripture, from the book of Exodus, the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, as well as another passage that God had given them. And notice, notice first of all though here, notice in verse 10, who does he say said? Moses said. It is interesting, if you follow, if you trace the history of Bible colleges and theological seminaries, almost every one of them, when they begin to abandon the Word of God, they do so first by abandoning that Moses actually wrote the first five books of the Bible. It's a fascinating study in the past two centuries how it's happened. But here Jesus says, Moses says, but notice what he, what he said in the previous verses. He called it the commandment of God. And in a minute, he's going to call it the Word of God. In other words, he's saying, the Word of God said, honor your father and mother. This was the commandment. But then notice in verse 11, now he's going to say, give an example of how they elevated their traditions over the Word of God. Verse 11, but you say, if a man said to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corbin, that is to say, given to God, you are no longer... You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition which you have handed down and you do many things such as that. So, the Jews had a tradition in which you could declare some of your assets, maybe your house or maybe money that you had saved up, as Corbett. This is to be offered unto God. And maybe it would be something that after you would die, it would be donated to the temple or to the synagogue system. And imagine if you had done that, but then your father who's in his 70s gets sick and he's no longer able to work. And the only money that you have that could help him are in these assets that have been designated as Corbin. And you go to uh, the religious leaders and say, I want to be able to use this money to help my parent. They say, no, that money's ours. It needs to stay here. 
And Jesus is saying, no, there's this commandment to, that God gave to honor your father and mother. Here's this other man-made tradition, not necessarily a bad tradition, but, but you've elevated this to the level of the Word of God and now it's hindering this person from honoring their parents by obeying this tradition. And so you can see in, the, in this passage, Jesus rebuked the religious leaders for elevating their traditions to an equal level of the Word of God. It says, no, the Word of God must be king. It's the Word of God, not a tradition of man. And so you can see Jesus' view of the Bible. Now again, we have certain Christian traditions. And tradition is not necessarily evil. We have creeds and confessions, things that uh, the church has believed and taught for, for hundreds, thousands of years. And in our culture today, it's popular to dismiss any tradition. And I want to say, no, we shouldn't dismiss Christian tradition, but we also shouldn't elevate tradition to the level of what God has given us in Scripture. Scripture has to be the ultimate standard, the ultimate authority, because the creeds and confessions are interpretations of the Scripture and not the Scripture themselves. Thankfully, almost every instance, many of them, they're true to the Word of God, but they're not the Word of God. Sometimes we have certain traditions in our kind of Christian subculture that, you know, we think the Bible speaks on, but maybe it hasn't. You know, have you ever found yourself in a position, there's got to be a verse for that somewhere in there. <laughs> That's probably not a good position to be in. Okay, when you're trying to import something into the Word of God that God hasn't spoken on because it's a tradition. It doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong, but we want to be very careful not to elevate Tradition to the level of the Word of God. Secondly, Jesus believed in the authority of Scripture in deciding matters of doctrine, what you're supposed to believe. Mark chapter 12, verse 18. This was a, a, a debate Jesus was having with the Sadducees, this was a part of the religious leaders. The Sadducees were part of the religious leaders of that day. And Mark helps us out by, by telling us that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. The, some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and began questioning Him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife behind and leaves, she leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. So this was something that God had revealed in the law that there would be a kinsman redeemer if a, if a woman, uh, her husband died, that the, the unmarried brother would then uh, marry this woman and provide for her and the first offspring uh, that they had would be, actually be regarded as the son of the deceased brother. Well, these Sadducees present a hypothetical situation. Verse 20, There were seven brothers, 
And the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died, leaving no children. And third, likewise, also all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. And so these Sadducees, you can just kind of imagine them giggling amongst one another. You know, this woman who had seven different husbands and them joking, what, who will be her husband in the resurrection? Well, notice what Jesus, how Jesus responds. Verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is not this the reason you are mistaken? You do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God. Your problem is you don't know your Bible well enough. And you don't believe in God's power. Verse 25, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, that is to Moses, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. So the, the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in angels as well, by the way, which Jesus was giving another jab, saying that we'll be like the angels in heaven, not marrying or giving in marriage. But he says here, he quotes from Exodus chapter 3, I think it's in verse 14, where God is speaking to Moses at the burning bush. He's speaking to Moses and And you remember, Exodus comes after Genesis. And in Genesis, that's where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were at, right? But they had been dead for many years. So God is talking to Moses. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they'd all been dead. But God speaks to Moses and says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus is saying, why would God say, I am their God, if they're dead and they don't exist anymore, if there's no afterlife? Maybe he would say, they they were, I was their God, but now they're dead, they're buried. No. God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus says, this demonstrates that there is an afterlife, because God is not the God of the dead, but He's the God of the living. And so the point being is there's this debate, a theological debate that existed between the Sadducees and the Pharisees of that day concerning resurrection and afterlife. And Jesus drops a bombshell in the midst of them quoting Exodus chapter 3 saying, indeed, this demonstrates there is a resurrection, there is an afterlife. The Bible shows it. Point being, Jesus believed that the Bible is the authority in deciding what we're supposed to believe. The Bible is the ultimate authority because it is the very Word of God. And so, again, when you apply this to your life, what should you believe? You should believe what God has revealed in the Bible. How do you know what to believe? Well, you need to be familiar with the Bible. You need to be, make the Bible the book that is your life study. The food for your soul. You need to sometimes re-examine things that you've believed in light of, does God really say that? Or is that something that I've 
people I respect and love in the past have taught me? Or is that actually what God has said in His Word? So Jesus believed in the authority of the Bible over the traditions of men, over deciding matters of doctrine, what we're to believe, but also in matters of ethics and morality. Turn to Mark chapter 12, verse 28 to 34. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, recognizing that he had answered them all well, asked him, asking Jesus, what commandment is foremost of all? Jesus answered them, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. So somebody comes to Jesus asking Jesus, what's, what's the foremost commandment, the primary commandment? Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus chapter 19. Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Deuter- uh, Leviticus chapter 19, love your neighbor as much as yourself. These, these are the summary statements of God's commandments. Verse 32, the scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated he is one and there is no one beside him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Again, what's the basic point? When somebody asks Jesus, what is, what is a summary of all of man's responsibility before God? How are you to live? Jesus goes back to the Bible. He goes back to the Scripture. The Scriptures are the revelation from God that determines how we're to live our lives. Jesus had a very high view of the Bible as the very Word of God. Now, someone may say, well, all the Word of God wasn't written and all the Scripture wasn't written. That's true. About 75% of it was written. But Jesus would commission His apostles, He would even in the Gospel of John, He would say that the Spirit will remind you of the things that I spoke to you. And ultimately, that's why we have the New Testament. Because the apostles wrote the rest of the Scriptures, the 27 books of the New Testament. So Jesus believed in the authority of the the Scripture over tradition, over what we're supposed to believe, doctrine, over how we're supposed to live, but also, fourth, the authority of Scripture over experience. Now, Now this is important, especially in our day, because our own personal experience is usually seen as the end-all, be-all of everything. But look at Luke chapter 16, verse 26 to 31. This is on the tail end of uh, what, is, what is probably a parable Jesus gives here. And it's about two men who die, one who's in a place of paradise, one who's in a place of torment. And the guy who's in the place of torment wants the guy who's in the place of paradise to go 
and tell his brothers to repent. Let's pick it up in verse 26. And besides all this, there is a besides all this between us, between you, between us and you there's a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here uh, from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. Verse 27, and he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him, send the man in paradise, called Lazarus, send him to my father's house. Verse 28, For I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not come also to this place of torment. So what's the rich man asking for? He's asking for... Abraham to send Lazarus in the place of paradise back from the dead to warn his brothers to repent so that they won't don't wind up in the place of torment so that they don't go to hell. And Jesus' response here is shocking in verse 31. But he said to them, or I guess I should say Abraham's response as Jesus records it, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. If they don't believe the Bible, they're not going to believe the experience of witnessing this man come back from the dead. What's interesting here is so often it's suggested, well, if people could just see miracles, then they'll believe. But what Jesus is saying here is that it's ultimately the Word of God that's the highest standard. And the Word of God is that which God uses to actually raise people spiritually from the dead. And so that the Word of God... And by the way, all of our experiences are interpreted experiences. And either we interpret them rightly or we interpret them wrongly. And how do we interpret them? Well, if we're interpreting them according to the truth of God's Word, then we're going to interpret them rightly. But if we interpret them according to some other source or authority, then we're going to interpret them wrongly. And so even the Word of God needs to be the interpretive guide for any of our experiences. It's the authority. So, again, we see Jesus here has a very high view of the Bible. He is the Bible-thumping Jesus. One more. One more implication, one more area that Jesus believed in the authority of Scripture. He believed in the authority of Scripture in matters of history. What do I mean by this? Well, you know, every once in a while you'll see somebody say, well, yeah, the Bible is good to guide us in what we're to believe, but, you know, when it comes to matters of science and history, you know, it gets some things wrong. And they draw a wedge between matters of doctrine, matters of faith and morality, and matters of history and science. 
the first major problem with that is you can't actually divorce the two, right? Because one of the greatest matters of faith that we as Christians believe is a historical event, right? Namely, the death and resurrection of Jesus. So if we can't trust the Bible on history, how can we even believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus? Because is that not a historical event? But also, it's helpful to begin to probe and see what did Jesus believe about the history of the Bible? Did Jesus really believe Adam and Eve were real people that existed? Or was this just an allegorical story? Turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him, again, according to his custom. Once more, he once more began to teach them. And some of the Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. He answered and said to them, What did Moses command? So what does Jesus go back to? He goes back to, What's the Bible say? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. They they quote from Deuteronomy chapter 24 and say, Well, God gave us divorce. But verse 5, Jesus responds, Because of your hardness of heart, He wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So they quote Deuteronomy 24, where God gave this this, uh, these, these regulations regarding if a man were to divorce his wife, whether he's permitted to marry her again, he has to give her a certificate of divorce. So he, God gave these, these uh, regulations concerning divorce, and the Pharisees used this as a justification. See, God gave us this regulation about divorce, it must be okay. But Jesus goes on to say, well, no, you haven't read the Bible correctly. Yes, God gave this regulation, but because He knew you weren't going to obey Him. And they at least have some kind of stipulation to protect a woman so she has a certificate in her hand of divorce. God gave you this regulation, but that wasn't God's design from the beginning. God's design was in Genesis 2.24 where He says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother be joined to his wife. But notice how Jesus argues here when He he says in verse 6, God made them male and female. Who's that? That's Adam and Eve. And notice how Jesus describes this. From the beginning of creation. Now some people far smarter than me and far smarter than the Bible and God Himself would suggest that this universe is billions and billions of years old. And so because of that, Adam and Eve, um, you know, they were Johnny-come-latelys in the history of creation. I mean, billions of years had gone on before Adam and Eve ever came out. I mean, because they were the products of, you know, going from the goo to the zoo and monkeys and apes, and now there's Adam and Eve. But Jesus 
actually didn't believe that, did he? Because he said Adam and Eve were from the beginning of creation. He believed in a historical Adam and Eve. Okay, well, but you don't really believe, Matt, that you know God flooded the entire earth with water, destroying all of humankind except for eight people and rescued them through a boat. People scoff and mock at a global flood of Genesis 6 through 9, even though 71% of the earth's surface is covered by water, even though many people believe that there was global floods on Mars, but not on earth, because that's, that's fiction, because the Bible says, even though most every tribal people group has some kind of, usually warped and twisted, but some kind of ancestral oral tradition of a global flood, even though many secular eschatology, much secular eschatology today would say that, you know, ice caps are melting and there's going to be another global flood. But the global flood of the Bible, that's, that's fiction. That's nonsense. Except for the fact that Matthew 24, Jesus said, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in the days of the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and all took them away. So it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus believed in a flood. And he also told us to believe crazier things than that. Namely, he's coming back. You don't really believe that God incinerated the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sexual perversion, do you? Except for the fact that Jesus would say, Woe to you, Horizon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Because if the people of Sodom and Gomorrah had witnessed the miracles of your day, they would have repented. But your judgment will be greater than Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus believed God actually judged those cities on the plain. You don't really believe that, you know... Mrs. Lot, on her way out of those cities on the plain, turned around and became a pillar of salt. And yet in Luke 17.32, Jesus said, Remember Lot's wife. He believed it. Oh, Matt, you don't really believe that uh, a giant fish came and swallowed Jonah, do you? Jesus said, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. I believe things crazier than fish swallowing Jonah, namely, that the tomb of Jesus is empty. Jesus believed all those things. And I understand one day... Especially you young people, you're going to have a philosophy professor or some professor who's on their fifth wife 
And they know more than the Bible. They know more than anything that you've ever been taught. But I just want you to remember, Jesus believed all that stuff. And I don't think your professor knows more than Jesus. Well, we can go on and on with that. How should we respond to the Word of God? Well, first of all, hopefully as you've been seeing and I've been arguing for, you should believe it. Believe what God has said in His Word. Yes, I understand it's an ancient book. It's hard to understand, but you need to believe it. You need to have your conviction cemented by what God has said in His Word. It has to be united with faith. In fact, uh, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 2, as the author of Hebrews is warning the, the, the Hebrews, the, the audience, of not neglecting to believe what God has given, what God has revealed, he brings up the Israelites in, in the Old Testament. He says, For indeed, we have had the good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. So that the word of God must be united by faith. And the the message of the Word of God that the author of Hebrews is speaking of here is the Gospel. You see, here's the wonderful thing. Jesus points you to the Bible and the Bible points you to Jesus. Just as Josh was teaching on Christmas Eve, the whole storyline of the Bible is about Jesus. And so you must believe in all that it says and especially what it says about Jesus and God's redemptive plan of salvation. Namely, that we are sinners guilty before God, deserving His judgment, and God sent forth the Lord Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. He died and rose from the dead. And you believe that, you bank your life upon it. That's the starting point. And so, friend, if you haven't yet believed on the Lord Jesus, believe in Him now. Trust in this great storyline of the Bible. But believe everything that God has said. We actually don't get to pick and choose the parts of the Bible that we believe. If it's plenary, if it's full, all of it is inspired by God, we have to believe all of it. But secondly, not only to believe the Word, to fear the Word. It's interesting, Psalm 19, as it uses different synonyms for the Word of God, the statutes of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the law of the Lord. In verse 9 it says, "...the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever." The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. In other words, the fear of the Lord is so associated with the Word of God that He calls the Word of God the fear of the Lord. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, when God gave instruction for future kings of Israel to write down their own copy of the Scripture under the supervision of a scribe, God did this, He said, so that the kings would fear Him. The Word of God is something that is to be revered and feared as the very words of God, as words that come from Almighty God that aren't words that we pick and choose and trifle with, but words that are submitted to, believed and obeyed. 
This is what Pastor Chris was teaching on just a couple weeks ago when, when James says that we are to, in humility, in meekness, to receive the engrafted Word which is able to save our souls. With humility. We don't argue with God. He's God. We don't debate with Him. We don't talk back to Him. We say, God, I don't understand it. This is hard. But you said it. And you're God. And so I'll believe it. Isaiah 66.2 But to this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite and who trembles at my word. You see, friends, if the Bible is just merely ancient literature, then we could chew on some of it, spit it out. But because it's the very Word of God, we are to humbly and fearfully believe it and submit to it. And this can sometimes be challenging and, and sometimes in unique ways that we might not even realize. Because m- so many of us are so... We believe the Bible is the Word of God and so we, and we have access to it in so many different ways. Sometimes a kind of familiarity with the Word of God can mm, tempt us to not fear it like we should. What do I mean by that? Well, you know, you can be cleaning out the garage and you're listening to Max McLean read the Scriptures to you. And there's nothing wrong with that. I, I do it. Or listening to a sermon. But, but because that medium comes to us and we can sometimes be doing things that are very trifling and mundane, it, it can sometimes make it difficult for us to give the Word of God the reverence it is due. Or here's another example, uh, and I became aware of this a couple weeks ago, as I was sitting with my family and watching Pastor Dale on the big screen in front of us as we were self-quarantining, and... Uh, uh, we're listening to the Word of God preach, and it, and it dawned on me, you know, that this is the same spot we watch America's Funniest Home Videos. This is the same spot that I uh, play charades with my children. <laughs> in other words, in that very space, we do very trifling and mundane things and it's almost like you have to mentally prepare I'm ready to hear the Word of God in this space that is normally quite mundane. And so we need to cultivate a a fear of the Word. But thirdly and lastly, a love for the Word. Psalm 19 again, speaking of the Word of God, they are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. You like desserts? 
How many times have you passed up the dessert table this holiday season? If you're like me, not many. Maybe I should say, how many trips did you take to the dessert table? It's sweeter than honey, even honey from the comb. You know, the honey, uh, this was the, the sweetest thing they had in the ancient world. This was the dessert. This was the delicacy. The Word of God is sweet. It's desirable. It's something you don't pass up. It's something that you want seconds of. It's something you want to keep going back for. Why? It's such a delight to your soul. And when it's not, that's when we know there's probably a problem that we need to confess. Lord, give me a hunger for Your Word. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 1, to crave the pure spiritual milk of the Word so that you may grow in respect to your salvation. Do babies like milk? I mean, they get hangry if they don't get their milk, right? Arr! Sweetest little thing, but they're going to let you know when they're hungry. He says, we, and it's actually a command, we are to crave the pure spiritual milk of the Word that we may grow in respect to our salvation. What is your attitude towards the Scriptures? Do you cherish the Word of God? Do you love the Word of God? Do you seek to feed upon the Word of God? And, and this can be fleshed out. And, and what are your habits of feeding upon the Word of God? Do you memorize the Scripture? Do you regularly read the Scripture? If, if you don't, I urge you to do so. Make a commitment this upcoming new year. Maybe to read through the Bible over the course of the year. Read through the Bible over the course of the next two years. Or make a commitment to memorize Scripture. Memorize paragraphs of Scripture. Memorize books of the Bible. Feed upon it. These are the words of the living God. And, and you can't really make a divorce between the Word of God and God Himself. Some people try to do that. But you see, the Scriptures are the voice of God. This is how God speaks to us. I mean, imagine if I... You know, when I... Many years ago... Would be walking along the way in this young, cute Filipino girl would talk to me, it would just melt my heart. She's talking to me. And what if I said to her, I love it when we talk, when we have conversations. She said, what if she said, why are you so fixated on our conversations? What about me? Don't you love me? Well, that would be silly, Right? Because our conversations were a revelation of who she is. They're, in a sense, part of who she is. You, you cannot divorce the Word of God from God Himself because it's how God communicates to us. Amen. It's His revelation to us. <coughs> Job said... 
Job 23.12, I've not departed from the command of his lips. I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. And so can I challenge you, friend, if you, if you find your appetite for the Word of God is weak, confess it to the Lord. And resolve. Resolve to be committed to a greater intake of the Word of God. Because the funny thing about the Word of God is that the more you neglect it, the less hungry you are for it. But the more you consume it, the more hungry you are for it. And so commit yourself to force-feeding yourself the Word of God and to respond to it with belief, with fear, and with love. Let me close by telling you the story of a, of a young French girl who had been born blind. And she learned to read by touch. She learned Braille. And a friend of hers gave her a Braille copy of the Gospel according to Mark. She read it so much that her fingers became calloused and she couldn't feel the words anymore. And she was so disheartened by this that she began to cut the calluses only to find out that she was going too deep and she was actually making more deeper and thicker scars on her hands. And she became so discouraged and disheartened by the reality that she would no longer have access to read the Word of God. And so in one last seemingly funeral-like moment, she took up that book of the Gospel of Mark and she kissed it goodbye only to discover that her lips had the sensitivity to read the Gospel of Mark. And so she spent the rest of her days kissing God's Word as she read it. Friends, oh, that we might have such a love for God's Word. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, You have spoken to us. You've given us these 66 books of the Bible. They are Your words. Lord, help us to believe, to fear, and to love them. Because, Lord, we believe in doing so we would be fearing, believing, and loving You. In Jesus' name, amen.